right. Um, well, as you know, that the plan this week and the coming weeks, Lord willing, is to um, is to move through the uh, to move through the Beatitudes. And specifically today, um, we'll be uh, dealing with the first beatitude, uh, poor in spirit. That's it's just behind there. Yes? I hope you're going to explain it, but I would really like to know what beatitudes actually mean. We'll get into like some of the discussion on, awesome. on that for sure. But um, That's my first question. Let's go ahead and... Um, Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I come before you with the brothers and sisters here and ask that your spirit would be among us, that your spirit would teach us and instruct us to the good of our souls, to the glory of your name, and to the edification of this body. Uh, Lord God, would you be with us? Would you uh, instruct us, Lord? And uh, would you be magnified this day in your name? Amen. Amen. All right, so if you want to go ahead um, and turn to Matthew 5, um, just as a, this is where obviously, um, you know, we see the Beatitudes, um, or the, the greatest, the biggest exposition of them, I should say. Um, Matthew chapter 5, we see them in verses 3 through 12. <clears throat> what we have here before us, or what we're confronted with, in this passage of Scripture are statements made by Christ, these blessed statements made by Him, that to the world are an enigma and are paradoxical in nature. Uh, this paradox, for those who may you know, be fuzzy on the definition, is defined as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or uh, is opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true, and in this case, we know is most assuredly true. Uh, these types of paradoxical statements we see used by Christ and others throughout the scripture. Um, and he often uses these and others are used to point out a stark contrast between the way of the kingdom and uh, that of the world. So a couple examples, right? Uh, we read in the Gospels, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who will lose his life for my sake will find for my sake will find it. Or a little bit further down there in Mark ten, we read, "But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all." Outside the Gospels, we read of things that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled or brought low. Right, so. Uh, so here, too, in these Beatitudes, we are encountering uh, these, a number of paradoxical statements that, uh, for example, uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted. Um, we read of things that those who are meek shall inherit the earth. The world says, no, 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 like, put yourself forward. Make yourself known, right? That that's the way of um, strength, that that's the way of truly garnering life. Um, but not so here with the words of Christ. It is in these statements that Christ provides a clarification or even calls to remembrance uh, where genuine blessedness is to be found. 
is not to be found in the sayings and the ways of the world or the culture. It is to be found here that we see uh, in, in these verses. And so to these statements, obviously to the world, appear contradictory or in their mind, they're flat out wrong. But to those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to understand, we see these truly as glorious thoughts, glorious statements, glorious truths. And so before diving in depth, in particular on poor in spirit, I kind of want to lay a foundation of these beatitudes in general. These are, these are particular statements here that will not necessarily be repeated week over week, but in a sense apply to them all. So I want to kind of address these up front. First, um, in this regard... Uh, what we see here is that these are characteristics um, of, um, uh, you know, uh, inhabitants of Zion. These describe uh, that what we are looking at here is the nature of the true Christian. Uh, the, the true uh, citizen of Zion, this is what they will possess. Uh, these are not optional characteristics. They're non-negotiable. Uh, these are to be, uh, these aren't even reserved, if you will, for the super spiritual. This isn't like, okay, well, I'm, I'm this type of Christian and I'm down here. And then the super spiritual, oh, they'll be poor in spirit or, oh, they're going to be meek. Uh, but these are truly things that are necessary characteristics, essential virtues, um, that must be found in some form or fashion in every person who names the name of Christ. This isn't an a la carte list where one person's poor in spirit, one person's meek, one person mourns, one person's persecuted, but that if we name the name of Christ, we will all be poor in spirit, we will all mourn. At some point, we're even told in Scripture, we will all be persecuted. So much like the fruit of the Spirit, which should be exhibited by each believer in varying degrees. It is the same with these Beatitudes. Uh, these should all be manifested in the one who names the name of Christ. Second, it's, it's not a to-do list. Um, um, I should say not. Oftentimes, these can be looked at by some as a list of things to do. People like lists. They want to make lists. They want to check off lists. They want to know, what do I have to do to get to this end point? Some people start their work day that way. Um, but that is not the case with these Beatitudes. Uh, we must understand that this is not a list of to-dos or a list of works whereby a person works their way to salvation or works their way to a state of blessedness. Uh, these, are character, these are not characteristics that we somehow try to conjure up within ourselves. As if we say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go make myself poor in spirit, or okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to force myself to mourn, um, or I'm going to do my very best to be meek. Uh, but rather, these are characteristics, not of the one who works, but of the one who is worked on by the Holy Spirit. In other words, or more simply stated, these are characteristics that are wrought solely by the work of the Holy Spirit, not of ourselves. These are, these are characteristics that are the imprint of God's work upon our life. And what we should be doing as we move through these, Lord willing, this is meant to be more of a practical look into the Beatitudes. It's not necessarily going to be this massively deep theological dive, but do we see these in ourselves, ultimately? 
Next, I want to look at uh, the language of, of blessed um, and just some general comments. Um, some general comments on, on blessed. This, this language, if we've spent any amount of time in Scripture, this is not the first place we see the language of blessed. Um, it should not sound odd or foreign to us. We see it, for example, for example we see uh, it in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 starts off with, blessed is the man. Uh, we see a twofold blessedness in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. It says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. But even before the blessedness and others that we read in the Psalms, we see the language of blessing, of blessedness prior to that. Um, we see it uh, in Genesis uh, 12, 3. Um, and so we must understand that really this, um, this, this language that we read here is covenantal language or covenantal benefits. We just spent a number of, of weeks here. If you want to take these verses down, we're, we're going to be just referencing, or my references will be to Genesis 12, 3. In that, we read of that in him, in Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then we get a little bit more insight of how this blessing is to come. In Genesis twenty two eighteen, we read, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then as we move into the New Testament, we get a better picture of what was referred to by seed, right? It wasn't a plural, it was into your seed, namely Christ. That it is through Christ, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. We see that in Galatians 3.14. And then, of course, we know the, the great verse in Ephesians 1.3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so what we must understand is these blessed sayings, these statements that, that convey um, where genuine blessedness is to be found is first and foremost garnered because of Christ. The, the blessedness that we read of here is in the Beatitudes is ultimately because of God's covenantal love for his people. And therefore is assured blessedness. It's not a blessedness that is blessed today and then tomorrow, uh, maybe not, right? This is a sure blessedness. Second, and this maybe gets to some of your question here, Chris, but it's representative of our true nature. Um, <clears throat> blessedness uh, is generally looked at as meaning fortunate or happy. And some will often misunderstand that happiness as to be um, as if it pertains to a subjective state, like we're just always going to be happy, right? Um, but we must distinguish what is truly meant here by this language of fortunate or happy. Uh, blessedness in this case does not refer uh, to a mere feeling of happiness or some emotional state that we're experiencing that we would relate to happiness. Um, in other words, it's not a subjective condition. It's not um, pressed in upon or impacted by circumstances. Okay? That's key to remember because we see in the very next beatitude, right, that those who mourn are what? They're blessed. Those who are persecuted are what? Blessed. 
And so I assure you that if you're doing a proper mourning, you're not necessarily going to feel happy. Or if you're being persecuted, you're not necessarily going to feel happy. You may, you may have some of that. You may remember, obviously, in those moments what Scripture says, but at the end of the day, the feeling may not be there. And so what we're dealing with when we consider these words is uh, it's representative of our true condition. It's our objective state versus subjective. It's true whether we feel that way or not. It's not impacted by our circumstances. Um, Ultimately, we have supreme blessedness here in Christ. And so I was trying to think of a way in which, you know, to best describe it, to show it forth. And what I thought of was justification, right? You, you, you think of the Psalms in which David says that when he kept quiet about his sin, his bones wasted away within him. There was likely a lack of communion with God. He may not necessarily have felt justified when he's not confessing sin and so forth, right? But it did not change his ultimate position in Christ. He remained justified nonetheless. And so same thing for us. We may not feel happy all the time. Things can happen um, at work. Things can happen in the family. Things can happen wherever, and you're not necessarily going to feel happy. But it does not change the state that ultimately our position in Christ is one of true blessedness, true happiness. It is our state in which we reside ultimately. Any questions on that? No? You guys are too easy. So now I want to finally, you're probably thinking, like, is he going to get to poor in spirit? We'll talk about it now. I guess I would say, you know, the part about mourning, a lot of people, I think, tend to think that it's like mourning, just mourning, like over death or over some sort of sadness. But I think, I think from what I've studied, but maybe you can speak to this, it's like mourning over our sin. It is. Mourning more over Yes, yeah. That's ultimately, I mean, that's what we're going to see with any of these. Ultimately, the focus is not like this material. Um, that's right. And it's not a material focus, right? Like even what we're going to discuss here with porn spirit. And it's not a, a material circumstance or, or so forth. But all of these are spiritual in nature. That's how we have to understand them ultimately. Um, but I recommend you come back next week because we're going to, Lord willing, look at uh, those who mourn. So the second one is, now we're going to look to dive into uh, poor in spirit. And I want to do it really under, I'm trying to think of how many headings I have here. Uh, I think three or four. Uh, so let's see, Matthew 5.3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how are we to understand this poor in spirit? What does this represent ultimately? Well, first we need to understand that it's not a socio-economic state. Do you guys understand what socio-economic state would refer to? What do you guys think it refers to? That's part of it. That's the economic part, at least as far as I understand it. It's like this, you know, you don't have to be a pauper or, you know, homeless in this, you know, life. You can be, but, but in this case, what I'm referring to is, in, the way I'm looking at it is like from a social perspective, you could be an outcast of this world. That is not what this is referring to. That in the world, you're, you know, all of us are probably socially awkward at some 
point, right? But you're not, uh, it's this focus of this isn't your social status, it's not your financial condition, your economic state. Um, he spe- he's, nor is he spe- so he's not speaking of those who are uh, financially or materially poor. However, we often see language, especially in the Old Testament, um, in regards to the poor. So this, this language, well, well, poor in spirit isn't referring to a socioeconomic state. We must understand that it's not that there shouldn't be a need or concern for the poor. We understand that throughout Scripture we see God caring for the poor. Um, we understand, we see in the establishment of the law that there were provisions included for the poor and sojourner, right? So it's not, uh, you know, that, that the poor in this life should be like cast, oh, don't pay attention to them, they're not important. That's not the, the idea. But we see in places like in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23 where landowners were not to glean their fields all the way up to the edges, right? But were to leave those things for uh, the poor, the sojourners. Even in uh, Deuteronomy 14, we see that a special tithe was to be taken for both the Levite, the poor, the sojourners, right? But what was that tithe? It was a tithe of produce. It was to ensure that they could be taken care of. We also see in Scripture that with the poor, that God is often their protector. Think of Proverbs 14.31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And then obviously in the New Testament, we're familiar with the James passage, that true religion is marked out by what? It's marked out by, the the pure and undefiled religion is marked by visiting orphans and widows in their distress. So it's not that there's no concern for those who are lacking these basic necessities of life, and that those needs should be ignored. I think that as believers, we should be caring as much as we are able uh, for people that are in that position. But rather, in this beatitude, it is that Christ's focus pierces through the material need that people have and goes directly to the spiritual need. In other words, your social or economic status in life is not what ultimately matters. The world will tell you it is. The world will tell you that that is what is most important. Christ says no. Rather, are you poor in spirit? How do you see yourself? What is being preached is not go sell all that you have and become poor and then you'll be blessed. We would understand that being poor in that way is not a true blessing. It's actually a great hardship. It's a great trial and tribulation. And therefore, the the focus and thrust of this beatitude is your spiritual condition. Do you understand your spiritual condition? Next, I think we would agree it's countercultural. What does the world say? What is the world's cry? Uh, The world says that the the message should all be about us trusting in ourselves and our position and our works as if those things will garner a look from God, as if those things will earn his favor. So what they say is, show forth. And I'm actually going to draw out. It won't be completed right right away, but uh, um, you have the world on this side, right? And um, poor in spirit over here. So nice compare and contrast. You can basically draw this down, self all the way, but what do they say? Self-trust or self-reliance, right? Self-assurance. They say uh, self-righteousness. Self what? Self-esteem, right? Self-esteem or self-confidence. 
That's right. Everything is about self. That is the world's focus is self. And Christ says, no, no, no. No, my message is countercultural to what everybody around you will be telling you. The world's mantra, and I'm sure you've all heard it, is God helps those who help themselves. Or they say, I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps, right? And however I can get along, I'm going to get along. And that's who God will look to. The world's beatitude is, blessed are the rich. But this is not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture are these very words of Christ, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so let's delve in now to uh, this aspect of the nature of poor in spirit. What does this look like ultimately? In the New Testament, what I... Oh, did you have a question? Oh, yeah. I just think it's the state of our soul, dude. Yeah, ultimately, it will, it's, our, it's our true... It's the state of our soul. Condition. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't... I probably shouldn't do this because I don't know it too well, but I'm going to, and then I'll take some. But in Greek, the word that's actually used here is patokos. Um, I'm going to try to... Patokos, which... <laughs> What, something wrong? You're good? Okay. Patokos, as opposed to uh, penace, which, that is terrible, I know, but you know how it goes. So, these are the two words, um, or two of the words that can be used to refer to poor. Yes. When I write Greek on the... Do you do the... I try to translate Okay, we'll go that route. So like that, so, and then uh, penace would be, and this would have the little, there you go. So the idea behind these, right, <clears throat> is this, patokos ultimately means somebody lacking spiritual worth. Or even in classical Greek, it's often looked at as somebody that's poor like a beggar. Um, Panace, on the other hand, would refer to somebody that is hardworking poor. So this is somebody that is truly doing all that they can do and are still in a poor state. Okay? I'm trying to say hardworking poor. So you can get the idea here that between these two words, one has a spiritual focus and another more of a material, right? It's like you're working, you're doing the best you can, and you can put bread on your table and so forth, right? So again, the idea that is conveyed here is is ultimately not a material focus, but a spiritual one. So it's one seeing themselves, ultimately, this word that is used here, is seeing yourselves as a true beggar before God. Not having any spiritual worth, nothing of spiritual value to claim before him. So what it essentially equates to is this. Now obviously, these selves can be extended over here, and just obviously be the exact opposite, right? But that's not all that it is. Because it's not just a a neutrality that it comes to, right? Ultimately, we must see ourselves as debtors to God. It's not just a, oh, well, don't trust in self and 
you're okay. It's we are ultimately debtors to God, and therefore it's it's not an even footing. We're actually down here, if you will, right? We're in the negative. And so we must see ourselves as spiritually destitute. Um, and then these will come down. Spiritually destitute. Spiritually needy. And finally, spiritually bankrupt. There is nothing that we bring to the table before him. And this is who he looks to. Ultimately, we realize that there's no hope in our possessions, our, our careers, our works, our titles, our education. How are we raising, for those of us that have kids, or hope to have kids, how are we raising them? What are they seeing in us? Do they see a, a mentality that by God's grace is poor in spirit? Or are we telling them, focus on your education. Focus on what career you're going to have. Focus on what you can garner in this life. Or are we showing them, no, what really matters is be poor in spirit. Recognize that before God, you are nothing. You have no value. Ultimately, we are emptied of all self-hope, emptied of all self-trust, simply emptied of all self in order that we may be filled with Christ. So I like the imagery that's provided by the old wineskins and the new wine. You don't put new wine... Right? We see this in scripture. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. Why not? The fermentation process of the new wine would what? It would burst open the wineskin. It could not handle it. So too, um, with, the, with the poor in spirit, you don't add Christ to the old man. The old man cannot handle being filled with Christ. The old man must be emptied of self, emptied of all self-trust, and become a new creation and be filled with Christ. And it is this very realization and this understanding that is foundational. And this is why, ultimately, Christ starts with this, blessed is the poor in spirit, because it leads to all the others. And this is ultimately where our walk with Christ begins. If there is no poor in spirit, there is no salvation. If there's no poor in spirit, if you are not truly poor in spirit, if that's not your condition, then you do not know Christ, ultimately. Yeah. In the blessed translation of NASB, Patokos, it has a little note here, it says those who are not spiritually arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is interesting just because like for us to understand the doctrines of grace, mm. like we of all people should be poor in spirit more than those who don't understand the fact that, like how could we be spiritually arrogant, which is funny because we usually are the most spiritually arrogant, you know? Mm. Um, so it's kind of contradictory, yeah. you know, to what we say we believe about being spiritually destitute, being needy, and being saved despite all that. Um, so I think as a Calvinist, you know, we have, of anybody should be poor of spirit yeah. and recognize that and, and that should be seen you know, in people who maybe don't understand the doctrines of grace like we do. Yeah, and I think you know, kind of picking back off that thought, this poor in spirit isn't a one-time act. Like It happened you know, at your conversion. You were made poor in spirit one time, <laughs> right? But it truly is a present and continuous 
action. That we are to remain poor in spirit for our whole life. And we'll actually look at a church later that did not do that. The church of Laodicea. They did not do that. And that's a warning to us. Very much in the lines of what you're, what you're saying. Yeah? So you would say then that being poor in spirit is a prerequisite, right, to salvation? And is that a parallel to regeneration also preceding faith? I mean, it goes back to, I think, any of the things, even when you were teaching on the order of salvation and so forth, it's, it's as if all of these things, you know, whatever the order is, they're all present, right? And so, but the fact of the matter is, is that you must be poor in spirit. Is You're not going to, why would you, why would it be good news? And we're going to actually look at this in a minute. Why would it be good news to you if you think that there's still anything in, in you to trust? Right? Did you have a question? I saw your. T- no. You twitched, so. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know you're, you're looking for. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. Sorry. No, it's good. Um, <laughs> it is the one who is poor in spirit that Christ came to save. Mark 2.17 says this. And hearing this, Jesus said to him, this is actually how essential it is, actually, Jai, to answer your question. Jesus says this. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Christ did not come to call those who trust in themselves, but rather those who in themselves see nothing to trust. This is the essence of poor in spirit. We see ourselves spiritually sick, spiritually unhealthy, and we fly to the great physician. You got something? People are moving. I said, okay. I, I, I guess you could apply that back to James 4, 6, where God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Yeah, so there's a definitely a close correlation between poor in spirit and humility, yeah. right? People often ask what the difference is. Thomas Watson would distinguish it as the poor in spirit kind of being what leads to humility. It's, you know, verse cause and effect, if you will, is the way that he looks at that. So we are made poor in spirit, and that ultimately leads to humility. Um, and this isn't a new message or teaching. The true citizens of Zion, true Israel, have always been marked by this beatitude. And so what I want to do, I want to walk through a few Old Testament passages that point this out as well. That This isn't the, obviously the first place we see this idea. So let's go ahead and turn over to Isaiah 61.1. 1. Um, Lord willing, the plan is to actually be back in the same chapter next week because it's remarkable what we see here. But Isaiah 61.1, man, time is really flying. <laughs> I was wondering if I had enough material. All right. We read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. What was the purpose of his anointing? To bring good news, but to bring good news to who? The afflicted, the poor, those who are afflicted in spirit, who see their true need. It's not good news if you think that you're okay. But he's bringing good news to the afflicted. He, is, he was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. In addition, let's go ahead and look now at um, Isaiah 57, 15. This is amazing. You see, you know, when Pastor Emilio was going through the Tower of Babel there briefly, right? And what are they trying to do? They're trying to work their way up to God to dwell with him. 
right, and to, to become close to him. And what we read here in Isaiah 57 and 15 is this, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. But that's not the only place that he dwells. This is truly amazing. He says, And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now we'll get into this contrition, Lord willing, next week. But this week our focus is on this spirit of the lowly. He doesn't just dwell on a high and holy hill as if he's separate from us. He is in the sense that he's holy. But he also dwells with those who recognize their need of him. Think of this. Generally people don't want to humble themselves for a lot of different reasons. But one of which is... Fear of getting stepped on, pushed down, made irrelevant, or whatever the case may be. But not so here. It is not so with God. Instead, here what we see is the purpose is not to break the bruised reed or to put out the smoking wick that we read of in Isaiah 42. It's not to crush those who are lowly in spirit, but instead to actually revive them, to actually bring them life. It's as if we see that we have no life no, no claim to life. And then we look to Christ and we're revived. And there are a lot of other places, but let's look at one other. Because I've got to get moving here. Hosea 14. Um, Hosea 14. This is another example. If you consider what Israel, the Israelites were doing, looking to other nations to protect them, to armies to protect them, They were calling out, unfortunately, to their idols to protect them. And look at what is said here in verses verses 1 through 3. Return, O Israel, to your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And here's what they're to do. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. That is, confess your sin and receive us how? Not on the basis of our works, on what we do. But receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. They're also to say this, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. We will not trust in our idols. Why? For in you, who finds mercy? The orphan. So this has always been the case. This is truly the case in which they are looking to be delivered physically, obviously. There's a physical deliverance that they're looking for, but... Make no mistake, this is definitely a picture of our needs. Stop saying to your money, to your houses, to your vacations, to the things of this world, oh, this is where my comfort comes from. This is what you know, matters to me. But look to the Lord, for in him the orphan finds mercy. Any questions on that? No? Okay. Moving right along, we're going to look at, I wanted to look at, um, we've defined poor in spirit, and I want to look at specifically um, examples of poor in spirit that we see um, in, the, in the New Testament. So, first, let's look at um, Luke 18 with uh, the Pharisee and uh, uh, tax collector. 
You read in verse 9. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's the purpose of him telling this parable. It's because there were people there who were trusting in themselves and viewed others with contempt. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. So he definitely doesn't see himself as patokas, right? And he's much like what you described, Chris, right? Where it's almost, you know, these believers, if you will, that are, you know, arrogant, boastful in themselves. So I thank you that I'm not like these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And here's what he does. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he's focused on himself, all these things that he does. That these things he thinks bring him spiritual value before the Lord. That's not the case, because look at what the tax collector does. The tax collector... We're all familiar with this. He stands some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, not even to to gaze up, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I liked, you know, as you described this verse in the past, right, Landon, is this aspect of the sinner as if there was nobody else there. It's just him. He's not looking to the Pharisee standing next to him like the Pharisee was standing looking at him. Oh, I'm not like him. No, he sees himself as the sinner. And who went away justified? He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, who saw his lack of spiritual worth, he went away to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Next, let's go ahead and look at um, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll start it. Um, I guess we might as well start at verse 2. It says this, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. And what else? It says here, and puts no confidence in the flesh. No hope in the things that we do. No hope in the things that we think that we bring to the table. But Paul goes on and he says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he's going to try to put this to bed and say, like, there's nobody else that can do this. If there was, it would be me. Why? Well, he says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless. He would be the one, right, that you would think could walk up and say, no, 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 here's what I bring, here's my spiritual worth, look at the things I'm doing. But when he has his encounter with Christ, what happens? He sees where he truly stands. He all of a sudden becomes Patokas or poor in spirit. 
He becomes poor and realizes that all of these things are what? He says this, but whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Any, any questions, comments? Anything to add? No? Okay. Well, let's look at one more then. Right. It is interesting though, like when you think about Paul, or Jesus himself, or whoever, these guys who are very righteous, like literally, actually righteous guys. But when you see like Philippians 3, you realize that they understand why that is, or you know what I mean? They don't take any credit for it. They don't boast in it. I mean, in a lot of Paul's letters, he's boasting about his spirituality, his ability to be an apostle and a leader, and has all this, hey, imitate me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he understands, you know what I mean? And his heart isn't boastful or proud about that. You right. know? So There's a balance there, yeah. right, between, um, and it's a delicate balance, I think. I think there's great danger where, but it's, that's not, that's, that's, that's boasting versus like, like pride in some sense, but tr- being true in, or poor in spirit is um, this aspect where you think that there's another way, right? Ultimately, we should be relying upon Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's look at one more. Um, Revelation 3. This is a church um, that really is nominal only. Um, a church in name only. Although once was likely a vibrant church. Paul speaks of this Laodicean church in Colossians. Uh, even that the letter that was coming from the Colossians should be read there and the letter from Laodicea should be read in Colossae. But clearly they... Um, they definitely lost their way in, in, in many different regards. But um, what I like about this particular passage, at least the way I understand it, is that we actually see this full beatitude play out right here. Um, I suppose we can go ahead. We understand that they were neither hot nor cold. We're all familiar with that. But a little background on the church of Laodicea, or, or at least the Laodicean city, um, it was one that was on a trade. It's on a, looking on a trade route. It's really a, a banker city, very, very rich, uh, very, very rich city. And so, and, and I guess I'll talk a little bit about the water. They didn't have great water supply. The water supply was actually filtered in through aqueducts, and because the water would sit in those aqueducts ducts and not fresh flowing, it would become lukewarm. And is that not amazing? Then you see here where he is describing them as lukewarm, and it presents this imagery. So, so too here, we read in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that poor word is the same word we've been looking at here. So he says, no, 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 you're, you're rich, but you have not actually seen that you may be rich, you know, opposite of penes, uh, plusios, or, or whatnot, but... You're lacking spiritual worth. You're lacking spiritual value. But I like this. What does he advise them? He says this, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I have to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone uh, hears my voice and opens the door, what will happen? He will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
So think of this. He's saying if you recognize yourself as having no spiritual value, right? I will dine with you. What does that sound like? If you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Not only now, but in the full consummation. They will sit down with him. Any questions on that or any comments? Yes. Um, I guess I've always had a misconception um, with Matthew 5 3. I've always thought it referred to um, that state where there's godly sorrow and you're spiritually broken. And that's when you actually realize your spiritual bankruptcy before God and then you cry out for repentance. I guess I've always associated it with just that period of the order of salvation, so to speak. Versus, because even here with Revelation 3, with the church here, he says, I wish you would buy clothes from me, or white garments from me. Yeah. So they haven't bought it before and tossed it out. Well, the church is they, certainly, they never had it, the, right? the church itself had certainly changed. That's why I said it was a nominal church. It's, it's a church in name only. They've clearly um, gone after the things of the world and have started in a sense. What does he say? You say, I am rich and have become wealthy. And what do they have need of? Nothing. They think that their possessions alone are sufficient for them. And they do not see that you can have all the possessions of this world ultimately, right? But what does that matter if you have no spiritual worth? Mm. And that's why Christ says, no, if you would recognize that you are miserable, poor, wretched, right? And if you repent, then I will dine with you and yours will be the kingdom. So were they ever Christian? Well, I don't know who's in that church now, but I know that Paul spoke of them in the past. I would like to think, we've discussed this, I would like to think that there was at least one believer there. (laughs) But you know what's interesting about this? The tax collector, he said he went away justified. So after the prayer, he became? Um, I don't know if that was indicative of his salvation, but more of his state. You know what I mean? Like That's not an example of him coming to Christ and being saved. He's just giving an example. The person who trusted in himself, not justified. The person who won't even lift his eyes up to heaven, justified. The one who says, I bring nothing. All I can claim is Christ. Maybe I missed it earlier, but what is a beatitude? I didn't describe beatitude, but it's just ultimately, it's it's blessednesses. It's it's, It's, it's a a blessing. That's a Latin word. Okay. Beatitudo, it literally just means blessings. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I kind of hit it, I just didn't address it directly. See, so once we're poor in spirit, then our spirit starts to get tamed, right? You start to obey, right? Well, the poor in spirit is, I don't know if that's like anything like obedience-wise. I think it's more of a, a state, a condition. Yeah. I mean, at first, yeah, it's poor in spirit. Does it start to get tamed and start to go toward obedience? I'm not. Or you always stay in the poor spirit. We should always stay. It should be past, present, continuous. Is what I'm saying. We should never, like this church clearly did, find value in anything else other than Christ for our salvation, for our spiritual good. But they did. They said they have no need of anything. Their focus was off. I'm saying it starts to get tamed when it wants to obey God now because they're saved now. Well, yeah, that would be a part of I think in general the spirit. You should recognize your need, and then obviously. If you truly recognize your need, if you're truly made poor in spirit, it, truly, you're going to know Christ. I mean, you're going to see you have no other hope. And that's a and that's a constant. Like what you're saying is, 
is that being poor in spirit isn't just a one-time, it's just a, it's not just a one-time occurrence where, right. you, where this was made evident to you right. um, by God. As, as if it occurred only at your salvation. That's right. Today we should be poor in spirit. We should recognize, just as yesterday, we have no hope other than Christ. Right. You see what I'm saying? It should continually remain in that mindset. And that doesn't mean we walk around with like a low self-esteem and like a you know, miserable like... It's there. Yeah. Right. But it's a recognition that if we want acceptance with God, it's through Christ alone. That is it. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing that you kind of re- referenced that you, we almost see the fulfillment of that beatitude here uh, with the Laodicean Church where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's talking about you know, uh, that... You know, those who overcome, he will grant to sit on his throne. That's right. So in, in essence, we see that, you know, those who are truly saved, in that sense, are poor in spirit, but he grants us the yeah. kingdom in the sense of we're sitting on the throne with him. That's right. You're yeah, rich. That's right. That's right. So, um, and that's ultimately, I mean, we're pretty much out of time. So this idea of the kingdom of heaven, though, is this already not yet aspect, the present nature, that it is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven even now. And that's what you see. He will dine with them. He will come into them. And so we have fellowship with God now. We commune with him now, not in the fullest sense. We have enjoyment of those things now. We're ruled by his laws, the laws of his kingdom now, but then in full consummation. Well, it's kind of like what you said earlier, uh, Brian, when you said that, Mm-hmm. These are more indicatives than mm-hmm. they are imperatives. Mm-hmm. So he's just kind of describing like, the state of the, you know, the kingdom. Basically, to me, like what I call this is the ethics of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on here. Where, you know, he's not describing, like you said, it's not a commandment to become poor in spirit. That's right. As much as it is, you know, the way and the path of salvation mm-hmm. is for those who are poor in spirit. That's right. Yeah. It's a good summary. So with that, we'll go ahead and... That's right. We're going to go ahead and worship now. Thanks.